If you get into weightlifting because you want to make money, then you're in the wrong fucking sport. I wanted to go to the Olympic Games. I wanted to be an Olympian, but it doesn't define me now. It's something that helped me build myself and find out who I was in those early stages, but it doesn't define who I am. A lot of what I do now is far more impactful to the masses than what I did as an athlete. You've got to really be in a position with what you want from life to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and go, I know I've done my best, or I'm working as hard as I can, or I'm ticking all the boxes I need to be ticking. Even the people that think they are probably know that there's probably another 1%. Regardless if, if there is, just be real with yourself to understand that and know that there there is more than acceptance. The funnest bit is the journey. With everything that I've thought I really wanted in life, you very quickly realize that, hang on a minute, the funnest bit was trying to get there. Everyone's got to have goals in life, not just from a business point of view, but from an achievement point of view to have purpose to wake up each day. My name's Sonny Webster and this is Life, Money and Love. Just quickly before we get started, guys, if you've been enjoying the podcast, can I please ask that you consider leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you've been listening. It really helps the podcast grow. All right, let's fucking jump into this. We're back in the old studio for anyone watching. We're building the new one at the office, but we're back here. There's no renos going on at my house today. A special episode of all my Olympics tea as well, just for you, Tani. Sunny, Sydney Olympics 2000. Obviously, we were, we were little, little young lads running around then, but fuck, it was special even as a kid to think of that. So I'm really into sport, really into the Olympics. So I can't wait to chat to you about your whole journey. For anyone who doesn't know Sunny, Olympian turned fucking incredibly successful entrepreneur. So obviously being this podcast, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about your businesses, how you grew them and stuff, but... All right, let me just set the scene. Obviously, Olympian, to get into the Olympics as a weightlifter from Great Britain, I know is already extremely hard to do. So just to get to the Olympics is a fucking massive achievement. And now founder of the Lifting Zone, Mobility Manual, Big Friday Supplies. And on top of all that, you're fucking flying around the world doing all your seminars. So I imagine you're a very busy guy. So thanks for giving us your time this morning. I really appreciate it. But um, where I want to start before, we, we will always rewind and go through your journey. But just let us know for everyone listening, some people will like to know like the context of like, if you can just give me like a couple sentences before we get into it of like what your main businesses are today, just so people know who you are and what you're working on these days. Yeah, for sure. First of all, thanks so much for having me on. Um, I know you've had some incredible guests. So I feel very lucky. Thank you. Um, so I guess an insight into what I spend most of my time doing now is looking after the lifting zone, being the main business, which is in the education space for Olympic weightlifting. And then I also have the mobility manual, which used to be housed under the Sunny Webster Academy, which we'll get into a little bit later. Um, which is an app that's for improving range of motion for sports performance across all sports. And then Big Friday Supplies was a bit of a passion project in yeah. uh, COVID as for, it was for a lot of people that kind of grew really well. And that's kind of where the majority of my time is now set. Yeah, I love that. And obviously all of these have come off the back of your Olympic uh, lifting and your weightlifting career. But I love what you – there was a quote when I was doing some research and I thought, fuck, this guy's going to be a fun chat. It's like sometimes obviously – you, obviously you're a competitor. You want to go out there and win. But you're like, as long as I look the best, like that's half the fucking, half the job done. So we'll chat about that and your passion. But um, obviously we can't talk about any of the businesses without rewinding and getting to know Sunny a little bit, how you became who you are, how you got into weightlifting, which I found was a really random story. And, and that random moment ended up creating the rest of your life. But talk to me, let's rewind a bit. You were, obviously you're from the UK. Where are you, where'd you grow up in, uh, in England? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, in Reading, yep. in around that area, Wokenham, and then from the age of around eight, I think eight nine, we moved down to Devon, mm -hmm. and for me that kind of was a pivotal point. Moving to a new school, eight nine years old. If anyone's been through that experience before, it's so scary. <laughs> 
Uh, didn't have any friends, didn't know anyone at this school. So that was down in Ivybridge, which is a little sleepy town down near Plymouth. And it was really well renowned for its sports, which was partly the reason why we went to that school. My dad got us to go to that school because even from a young age, I was really into my sport. I was, like you were saying earlier, like I'm kind of good at, was good at lots of things, but great at nothing. Um, and my main sport was was golf at the time. And this school in particular had a had a golf academy, which was cool. And for the first, I guess, two weeks of me being a, being in school, um, not knowing anyone at lunchtime, I used to go and sit in the uh, weightlifting gym, which was also super rare for a school to have a weightlifting gym and watch people do the sport. And it was really through sitting there and watching it for the first two weeks and not really having um, any interest in doing it. It was a way of filling my lunchtimes that sure enough, two weeks later, I started picking it up and it was through actually taking the piss out of people, giving it a go. <laughs> and the coach come up to me and said, look, you've been in now two weeks watching people give this a go. Why don't you come try yourself? And I was like, nah, I'm not interested. And she said, right, you got detention now tomorrow <laughs> lunchtime. You come have to come give it a blast. And that was it. It's so funny as well, just on that. It's, it's, I think there's a lesson in that even of itself, just before people dive straight into things, just take a little bit of time just to do a bit of research, just to watch, just to observe. There's so much value in that and like, being able to just watching for two weeks and, you know, spending your lunch times there watching all the maybe older kids do lifts, do some right, do some wrong. Do you feel like that helped you when you actually went in and actually started trying it yourself? hundred percent. And it's something that now, yeah, like you said, is a lesson that I do in everything new that I'm learning or trying to develop in, in my business life. It's all about observing, watching. And it was through watching people's mistakes more than anything that I learned the lessons that I needed to, to pick it up much quicker than I would have. And that's why I always say I don't think I was naturally talented at Olympic weightlifting or the strongest kid there, and I'm still not. But I think my ability to be able to watch, study, learn, and implicate what was being taught was my ability to kind of be good at the sport. And and you mentioned moving to a new school, it can be, particularly that age, hard to make friends for anyone. But do you feel like moving to this new school and maybe not having a lot of friends straight away, do you feel like that ended up helping you be so dedicated and committed to, to your training? Yeah, I think, you know, at a young age, as a lot of young people do, you're looking for something to to latch on to and kind of really um, help, I guess, build your identity. And weightlifting was definitely that thing for me. Um, it wasn't just about doing the sport that was great. I think for me, more than anything, it made me feel like I had a purpose at a very young age to, to focus on something and, and train for it. And Weightlifting gave me so much more at that early stages of my life because getting good at something at a young age in a school where people are like, that's the weightlifting kid, it made me become a lot more confident than I would have said I was naturally. Um, I was always the kid that would hate to go to parties or um, be social, I guess, as a, a young age. And weightlifting definitely brought that confidence out of me. Yeah, you mentioned the confidence there. And obviously I'm skipping a little bit ahead when I say, I, I imagine the amount of self-belief or, or confidence that you need to have in yourself to commit yourself to becoming an Olympic athlete one day is immense. But talk to me about how important and how much self-belief you needed to have to be able to back yourself. Because like you said, it's not easy getting into any, any sport at that level. Um, but it's certainly getting to an Olympic level. You just need to have that much belief in yourself because I imagine early days like, is it, well, you tell me, is there a lot of money in, in weightlifting? Absolutely not. Yeah, I, di I, I didn't think so. So what, how did you build that confidence? Was it like over the years of like achievement and getting better and, oh, wait, that's that weightlifting kid? Or was it just one day you just realized, nah, fuck it, I'm going to back myself? How did that kind of develop for you? I think like 
for me, look at, even looking at your shirt now and looking at Sydney 2000 and subsequently then Athens 2004, I remember from a really young age that nostalgic feeling that I got from sitting and watching the opening ceremony at the Olympics. And that was always like a really pivotal point in my life because I remember sitting watching it in 2000, watching it in 2004 and so on 2008, 2012. And every time I sat and watched that, opening ceremony of the Olympic Games, it made me feel like that's something that I want to be a part of. And at this time, I hadn't even found weightlifting, but I knew I wanted to be an Olympian. And I'm so grateful for the fact that at a young age, I had that experience to feel like I know what I want to do. And it was through weightlifting that enabled me to eventually achieve that. But the weightlifting wasn't the important thing at the time. It could have been any sport. I just knew I wanted to be an Olympian from a really young age. Dude, I can I can relate to that story uh, so much. I think you've done it. You've done it in the right way. You've ticked all the boxes. Like obviously, now you're incredibly successful in business and you've been able to do all that. But I'll tell you a story about me. What was the last Olympics? It was like two years ago now. Um, and I was watching, and obviously I'm 29 now. There's no chance I could start a sport and make it to the Olympics. But I remember watching it, and this was when we we're in lockdown, so I was at home the whole time, and I'm I'm spending most of my days, you know, watching the Olympics, just so into all the sports. And I remember at the end of the last Olympics, I would have, would have been already 27 and thinking, fuck, like I had that little urge of like wanting to be an athlete when I was a kid, but like yourself, well, less than yourself. I was never, I was always good at sports, was never great at any one thing. So I never pursued it, but I was so convinced after the last Olympics of what I've been able to do with business in my life. I'm like, you know what, if I can pick a sport where the it's, there isn't like a lot of skill to learn, like it's more just effort-based maybe I can fucking commit every single day of my life for the next four to eight years and try and make it the Olympics. Started looking up all the different sports. Okay, which one can I do? I can't do all the skill-based ones. Maybe European handball to, to, to get in as an Aussie would be easy. And they're like, nah, that they, Australian don't get a team there. I looked into rowing and shit. I'm like, fuck, I'm way too short. And just thought, you know what? I'm going to gonna have to go to my grave not ever being an Olympian. So fuck, man, I can relate to that. What, what, what was it about the Olympics that like made you want to fucking just dedicate your life to it at such a young age. Like to have that clarity, I never had any sort of clarity like that as a child. Well, yeah, the one moment that really sticks out to me was I remember being sat in a maths class and I would have been maybe year, year five, I guess at this point. And I mean, remember sat in the maths class and this would have been around 2004, I would say. Um, and, or 2005. And I remember the, uh, PE teacher come running into the class and saying, look guys, we've got to go into the other room. There's a big announcement about to happen on, on TV. So I was like, well, fuck math. We're going to watch TV. That sounds great. And there was only one TV in the, in the classroom and, uh, well in the school at that time. And basically it was three classes that were spread by these dividing doors. So they opened all the dividing doors and we all moved into this one classroom. And I remember the PE teacher flicking on the TV at the point where um, David Beckham and Kelly Holmes were jumping up and down, hugging each other. And it was just at the point where London had won the bid to host the 2012 Olympics. And I think it was that moment, like I said, for me, seeing how much it meant to them and how happy they were um, to have that bid and for London to host the 2012 Olympics really gave me that feeling that that's something I wanted to be a part of. I wanted to feel that way. And I think it was that moment for me that really gave me the the drive. Yeah, I love that. And you said you were a keen golfer beforehand, um, still are. But what point did you, was there a moment that you had to say, I'm going to stop focusing on golf and go all in on weightlifting? Or did you try and do both as long as you could? 100%. I, I pushed that envelope for as long as I could, trying to do both golf and, and weightlifting. 
And there was a moment I remember sat being sat with my auntie when I was, was young, probably when I was just about making this decision, I would have been around 15, 16 at the time. And my auntie remember saying to me, look, do you want to be a jack of all trades, a master of none, or do you really want to give one of these things a go? And I think I knew in the hearts, in my heart hearts that I wasn't going to be the best golfer in the world. It was a very competitive sport and there was other people that were better than me that I was surrounded by at the time. And I knew I wasn't as naturally talented or as successful in that as I was at weightlifting at the time. And I had to make that decision that if I was really going to try and give 2012 um, a go, I needed to put the clubs down for a while. And it wasn't an easy decision, but I knew it was the right one for me, bearing in mind at the time uh, golf wasn't in the Olympic Games. Um, and that was my burning desire was to become an Olympian. Now, I obviously want to talk about the Olympic moment and the just missing out on the qualifying for the Olympics before. But I want to get at just a little bit of a snapshot to get a bit of an understanding of what it's like to go from a kid in school, really talented, doing well, going to nationals, that sort of thing. But what's the journey look like to go from that stage as a, a kid with talent to ride up on the footstep of making the Olympics? Like, is there loads of fucking hard work, sacrifice? What does that look like? Yeah, and I'll kind of take you back to that school moment because that was kind of when I realized that weightlifting, there's no money, there's no fame, there's very little recognition for, for the sport and it's not well known. Um, I remember at a young age when I'd tell people that I did weightlifting, they'd be like, oh, okay, so how much do you bench? Like, <laughs> I was like, fuck, okay, yeah, no. So wait, that's not weightlifting. And they go, okay, so you're a powerlifter then. And I was like, no, powerlifting and weightlifting, Olympic lifting are different. <laughs> and it was always the case. And in the first year, or not even in the first year, I'd say, in the first six months, there's about 92 kids in my school that were doing weightlifting. After the first six months, there was about 60. After the first year, there was about 16. And I slowly realized that over the period of that year, two years, people were working this out and going, why do I wanna do this sport? <laughs> and there becomes a point where, you know, there's other things that are more exciting, you know, for a lot of people going and spending their lunch times playing football in the, in the playground with their friends was more exciting. Having girlfriends was more exciting. And I think that's one of the biggest things when it comes to being successful in any sport, life gets in the way very quickly for a lot of people. And you can be extremely talented and have all the things that you need to be the best, or at least in that top 1% in the world, but families happen, relationships happen, work commitments have to happen. And I just tried to prolong any of those things happening for as long as possible. Um, I wasn't excited about going out with my friends, drinking, partying, that sort of thing. Because for me, it was about, there was nothing more important than that one moment that I wanted to experience. And I was prepared to sacrifice all of those things for that one moment that I had. And again, I think it really comes down to the fact that I was exposed to that want to want to go to Olympics from a really young age, that it didn't really matter missing out on those things. You, you just mentioned something that I want to ask you about. Um, it's, doesn't matter if I'm, if I'm saying picking a sport or, st or starting a new business. I want to know what's more important to Sonny and what would your advice be to people? What's more important when you're looking to start a new venture, whether it be start the sport, the business, do you want to go for something that, okay, I have the most potential to make the most amount of money or do you make your decisions based on what am I actually going to enjoy doing the most? And then you have the belief that the money will be the byproduct of that passion. A hundred percent. It's always going to be the byproduct. You've got to understand what the key goal is, what your key purpose is with what you want to do. I think the the vehicle that you take to that end goal can be whatever vehicle you want it to be. 
like falling in love with the process and the journey to get to the end position is the most enjoyable part. And I don't think it matters whether you're driving in the Ferrari or in the, in the G wagon to get there or whatever it may be, it's falling in love with that process. So I'd say there has to be the passion there to, to want that end goal, um, above anything else. For sure. And like people always ask myself, ask other people, Oh, what's your best productivity hacks? It's like the biggest productivity hack is just do something you actually really enjoy doing. And then you won't need all these productivity hacks. You won't need to G yourself up or force yourself. Sure, there'll be moments where you don't always want to put in the work. But if you if you really genuinely love what you're doing and you're passionate about the act of actually doing it rather than just, hey, I want to be here in 10 years with the two Ferraris and the four mansions, blah, 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 blah. You're going to go way further. You're going to enjoy the process more. And particularly with the world we live in now with social media, content creation, all the different types of businesses you can start online you genuinely can make a business out of anything. Whatever your niche is, whatever your interest is, whatever your skills are, there's a really good chance that you can make a business of it anyway. So I've changed that perspective since going through business. Before when I was like younger, early 20s, I thought about starting a business. Oh, what can I make the most money from? Yeah. And then you make a bit of money, get the clarity that, fuck, the money doesn't really change much, man. But like, it doesn't even matter as well, like what, you know, the skill sets that you learn to, and the skill sets that I learned to be an athlete – I apply now to business and whether that business is in clothing or teaching people how to fucking lift weights, it doesn't really matter. The process remains the same. So I think for, for me more than anything, you've got to yeah be passionate about it above anything else. What are some of those traits or experience or skill sets that have, you've been able to leverage and, and transition from your sporting career to, to business and life? There's, there's a lot, but I'd say the most important thing would be, determination like above anything else like building discipline in um repetition repetition consistency turning up to the gym every day when you don't want to be there um and being determined to be successful is probably the most uh, valuable thing that i've learned from from my sport and being able to work in the shadows and then like people don't people see that olympic moment like yeah that's sick but they don't realize the thousands of days in the gym the early wake-ups the sacrifice like you said yeah i think that's obviously a major one um now, I think just just on that as well, that was where I really started growing my my social media platform as a weightlifter was about showing that side of things that people don't see. Like me lifting a weight that you can't comprehend or the vast majority of people can't comprehend, it's just a fucking heavy weight, is really difficult for people to relate to. But everyone knows that feeling of waking up at 6am and the alarm's going, you've got to go to the gym, you go, I can't be fucked today. Like everyone can relate to that. And that was a massive part about what I did in the early days when I was building my following was to show people the day-to-day -day normal shit that I deal with, that although on a scale is far bigger, it's still the exact same feeling, you know? Yeah, and I actually think that's actually the most interesting part because like every, like all the most athletes that are, you know, signed athletes, big professional athletes would just show like the, the photos from game day or, you know, the press conferences. But the things that people are most interested in and like at the end of the day, athletes no matter how successful they are human beings like if you can get a little bit of a snapshot to what life really looks like as as that person and how that regardless of if you're a professional athlete or just a normal person there's so many similarities we all feel the same things you know what i mean we all have self-doubts we all have to do shit we don't want to do so yeah i think that's awesome when did you start building your following because obviously you got almost half a million followers on instagram did you start this well like while you were being an athlete like while you were coming up when did it all start for you yeah, really early days. I'd say probably 2012-ish was when I was really wow. starting to push maybe even before that. I think I got to around 10,000 followers in 2012. 
So it would have been early before that. And again, it was at that stage when everyone was just kind of figuring out social media. Um, and I was at a huge disadvantage because my sport was weightlifting. And it <laughs> wasn't like now when you flick through a discovery page or whatever. And it's there's so much people, so many people training, doing weightlifting or a lot of social media is fitness based. Um, it wasn't like that before. It was people taking photos of stuff and taking photos of barbells isn't the most sexy <laughs> thing to do. So I think that was, yeah, kind of at that period. Yeah, yeah. Fuck, 2012, man, over 10 years. They didn't have, when did Instagram get video? That would have been like, what, five, six years ago? I don't even know. Yeah, I don't even know. Um, <laughs> but I want to talk about that moment. Um, was it the London Olympics, your home Olympics, you miss out by, of, by qualifying for, was it one kilo? Mm -hmm. What does that do to your head? Do you know what? Like at that period, it really sucks. It really sucked. It was the worst thing that could happen to me in my life probably at that moment. But I think in reflection now, looking back at that moment, it was one of my first big lessons where I really learned from. It made me really step back and actually, and it's still one of my favorite quotes now, the biggest lessons you learn are when you lose, to actually reflect on why I didn't make it in that in that event and why my time wasn't then to, to make the Olympics. And it was a really cool point in my life to actually take a step back and look at what I was doing to be the best athlete I could be. And I knew that at that time in my life, no one trained harder than me. Like I was the one who went the hardest in the gym and I didn't appreciate the value of all the other things outside of what I was doing in the gym that played a part in my performance. And I went and spoke to a psychologist at the time who was a um, was the dad of one of my good friends I was playing golf with, Martin Fricker. And he sat me down and he was like, Sonny, you've got to kind of look at your performance as like a spider's web. Okay? And he was like, each segment of the spider's web is an element of your performance. He said, okay, what you're doing in the gym, that's full. Like you're going the hardest in the paint in the gym. But he was like, what are you doing from a recovery standpoint? And I was like, I don't know. I just try and go to bed at a good time. <laughs> He was like, okay, cool. He's like, what are you doing from a nutritional standpoint? And I was like, well, I don't know. I just try and eat three meals a day. And I was like, cool. He's like, what are you doing from a like mental preparation standpoint? And I was like, nah, psychology is bullshit. And it really opened my eyes up to being able to progress far quicker over a short period of time if I filled up my most empty cups. Mm. And that's what ultimately got me the biggest leap from 2012 to 2016 was the fact that instead of focusing on trying to get that 0.01% in the gym to get better at something that I was already really good at, I turned my attention into my weakest areas. And by filling up those cups, as you do in anything when you're getting newbie gains, was the easiest thing to, in the overall, improve me as an athlete. And that unlocked a lot of shit for me. Yeah, because it's. It, I imagine when you're at that point, if you're like top 10% in the world at something, to go from top 10% to top 1% is hard. But I imagine to go from that, let's say, 0.2% to 0.1%, which is like qualifying, it's probably less than that. It's like, it's so much harder to find those gains when you're already so close to the top yeah. of your field. Did you find like a lot of your competitors, because you're quite young for the London, you would have been like yeah, 18, 18, 19. Yeah. yeah. Did you find a lot of your competitors were doing these things that you just discovered or they weren't either? No, I don't think that they were. I think they just had been in the game longer than me. Like I knew that that was going to 2012 was going to come early for me um, anyway, but I don't think that people were necessarily necessarily doing that um, at the time, no. Do you remember emotionally what that did to you afterwards? Like obviously you, you can use it as fire, but before you can use that as motivation, I'm sure it hurts, right? 
Yeah, and when I was younger, around the 18-year-old, I guess I wasn't the best at processing that. Um, and it did put me down in the dumps for, for two, three months. Um, but I think with the other events that happened in my life, I'm so much better at that now in actually looking at it, understanding it, and then moving on. Yeah. But yeah, it definitely took me a long time in that initial period before I learned to process my emotions in, yep. in that time. It's going to be hard for anyone at that age though. And then yep. to have such a big thing like an Olympic dream, be that close, your home Olympics, 18 years old, it's heightened so much more now. What I found funny, and I'm sure you can laugh about it now, but at the time you were probably thinking, what the fuck have I done now? You've gone through that. You've just missed out on, on, on the London Olympics. And then you've put in all the graft, you put in all the work over the next, whatever it was, three years until the qualification for Rio. And then tell us about the story when you're driving to the qualifications for the next Olympics after what happened the, the previous one. Yeah, it is a funny story. But I think like in that, six months or the year up to the qualification really like i said i doubled down on all of these areas that i knew i wasn't um the best at so i was eating the same thing every single day for nine months leading up had no alcohol leading up my sleep time was impeccable i didn't give a fuck about anyone else in my life it was just me and that moment that i knew was going to be for me and i prepared every potential eventuality that could happen on that day right down to and it comes back to what you're saying earlier like I made sure I had like the sickest pair of shoes that I'd like painted black and gold. I got like this custom weightlifting suit done black and gold. I was like, for me, a massive part about performing was looking good, feeling good and being in my best place to perform. So everything hung up and ready for, for the day for the qualifier before. I was so ready for it. I felt completely prepared. And I'd competed at pretty much every international up to this point, done hundreds of competitions. And this was about to be the biggest moment of my life. And um, my sponsor at the time is now actually CEO of my business. He came and picked me up um, to take me up to the competition. And I'm watching the live stream of the competition on my phone. And I seen this guy come out onto the screen with a very similar suit to the one that I was going to wear. I was like, oh, because not many people had that suit. I was like, fair enough. And then all of a sudden, I was just like, fuck. It's like Jeff Pullover, we're on the, mo we're on the motorway. And I go into the back of the car, open the boot up, and I've left all of my kit that I need for the day, like my boots, my singlet, suit, at home. And it's too far to go back now and because that's how I'd missed the weigh-in. So I'm left there with, like, none of my kit for the biggest day of my life. Fuck, man. Because even just playing sport at, at, on a casual level, it's, it's such a mental thing. And, like, to go in to rock up to anything and you don't have your normal lead-in, you've had all this stress go wrong – it can be so hard to just put that aside and focus. Now, obviously you're qualified, but talk about when you get there and you have to perform after all these things have just gone wrong. How do you center yourself back in and refocus? Was it difficult because you didn't have, like you said, you want to look good, feel good, have your normal preparation. As an athlete, you don't want anything going wrong in the lead up to your, to your big event. How did you block all that out and, and obviously do what you had to do to qualify? Yeah, and I think it comes back to that me being as prepared as I possibly could on that day that I knew that these factors or these things wasn't going to affect the outcome. So I think initially, and I used to be so superstitious that I would only lift with like no socks in my shoes. I couldn't wear socks in my shoes. And I had to wear, rely on a particular outfit to perform and feel my best. But I think at that moment, what I realized that is that those kinds of things are safety blankets, but if you've prepared as best you possibly can, you can be put in any situation and perform. And for me, I kind of just just got on with it. It was like, for me, I, I knew 
my destiny in that moment was to win and that regardless of what was thrown at me, I was going to overcome it. And it was through the preparation that allowed me to feel that way. And that's what I always say to my athletes and my clients now. If you can do everything you possibly can to be stood on the day to perform, knowing that you left no stone unturned, regardless of the outcome, you've done the best you can do. And that is the most powerful feeling to have when you're going to compete or need to perform to know that whatever happens, you've done the best you can do. So now's your time to enjoy it. Yeah, and I imagine it's an extremely freeing feeling, but the reality is, uh, and, it's, and it's a hard truth, most people, far majority of people, regardless if it's sport, business, life, relationships, whatever, don't get to show up on that day knowing they've done everything. So it can be harder to fucking just shut out all the noise out because you have in the back of your head, like I took that day off. or You've got to be you know? real with yourself. You've got to really be in a position with what you want from life to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and go, I know I've done my best or I'm working as hard as I can or I'm ticking all the boxes I need to be ticking. And even the people that think they are probably know that there's probably another 1%. And regardless if, if there is, just be real with yourself to understand that and know that there there is more and accept it. Yeah, that, that, that's a thought I have with myself a lot. And I'd love to get your opinion. Someone with like an Olympic level mindset is to the extreme. And I'm a pretty extreme person as well. I work extremely hard. I want to do a lot of really cool things with my life. So I know... I need to fucking work hard to do that. But where do you, how do you balance that elite mindset of performance, number one, versus like, okay, let's just say I go through the week and there was one day that I only worked for like eight hours and I know oh, I could have fucking – there's all these – there's a couple of these things I didn't get done. So I, I, that plays on my mind. But at the end of the day, you need to be able to develop some sort of balance so there's longevity. How did you – how do you manage that now in business? Is it different – in business that it's really long-term approach or how do you, how did you approach that kind of space of like performance and like not burning out? Yeah. I think the key thing for me, the first word that pops in my head is patience. Like I think when we're in a world where we're trying to achieve everything so quickly in such a short period of time and people's timelines to success are getting shorter and shorter and shorter, you put an extended pressure on yourself to double down on everything to try and get there as quick as possible. And at the point where you start to increase the amount of work capacity because you know within yourself that you can do it, there will always become a point where the burnout will hit. And as much as we all think we're invincible, we're not. And I think that's where it comes back to understanding like your, your pillars of, of health and wellness, like you said, from a mental point of view, from a physical point of view, um, as the most important thing everyone's work capacity is going to be different putting those things at the forefront of what decides how hard you go. And I think that has to be trial and error for everyone. Yeah. Everyone's limits are going to be different, but more importantly than the trial and error, I just think like, I don't have to work as hard as you. They, they don't have to work as hard as me. Your work ethic needs to just, in my opinion, be in line with what genuinely you want for your life and your goals. And now everyone can say, I want to have a million dollars, a hundred million dollars in the bank. But realistically, where do you see or want your life to be? And then if you can work to that level and you're happy and satisfied, that's sweet. Not everyone needs to fucking drive a Lamborghini or Porsche Ferrari, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that comes back to when you're starting a business or getting into business, know what like your number is and know what, what, uh, what your life looks like for you because yours will be very different to mine and vice versa. Everyone's picture of their idyllic life is different. You know, I've got a friend that's extremely successful that – his idyllic life is to live by a beach and walk his dog every day and have to do one to two hours of work a day. 
And I think it's incredible that people figure that out early and that's their definition of what they want to achieve. Mm. And everyone's is individual to them and there's no right or wrong answer. I've got a number in mind and the lifestyle that I want to live, that I'm working towards. And that for me is good enough reason to get up and go hard as fuck every single day because I want it by this day or yeah. this age so that I can enjoy it. You know? Do you Do you believe yourself that when you hit that number that hit that point you will enjoy the other parts of life or do you think there's because in in business when you're a competitive person you get one thing and then it's like okay now i've got it it's normal it's not enough Mm. i think the the most important bit is though as you know as a business owner i'm sure a lot of people listening will know that the the funnest bit is the journey like to that end bit like with everything that i've thought i really wanted in life like and uh, achieved like you very quickly realize that, hang on a minute, the funnest bit was trying to get there, not the bit that happens at the end. So I think regardless of whether when I hit my kind of point in my life from a business point of view that I want to achieve, I'll put that same emphasis and focus to something else. It doesn't need to be a monetary value or a business point of view or anything else. It will just be a new goal. Yeah. And I think everyone's got to have goals in life, not you know just from a business point of view, but from an achievement point of view to have purpose to wake up each day. Yeah. And, and I feel like as long as you audit yourself frequently enough and you're optimizing for happiness, then it doesn't matter what your goal is. If $10 million is going to make you happy, sweet. If you have $10 million and playing golf three days a week with your best mates and your dad are going to make you happy, then fucking go for that. Now I agree that the journey is actually the fun part. Um, but talk to me about the moment, obviously that it pays off. You've, Put all the, all the work in over the years. What was the more exciting moment for you than knowing that you've qualified when that was confirmed or the day you rock up to the Olympic Village? I think the the qualification was was definitely more fulfilling than anything else to me. I mean, there's no words to describe what it feels like to stand on an Olympic platform. Like I've competed so many times up to that point and it never felt emotional when I was competing. And it still makes me feel a certain way now when I think about it because it's like the whole of the whole 12 to 18 years of your life dedicated to one thing is flashed in front of your eyes and then you're there and it makes it all seem worth it. And through every high and low that you have in, in business, in life, when you get to that moment that you've reached where you wanted to reach, like the fulfillment that you get from that feeling is incredible, but it's very short lived. It doesn't last as long as this bit (laughs) does. It's very short lived and, I think for me, even post that now, reflecting on it, it was a very, the Olympics in itself is an extremely selfish pursuit. And don't get me wrong, I wouldn't change it for the world and will by far be one of the greatest experiences I've, I've ever had in my life. But it very quickly dissipates and then you realize that, okay, now what? You know? And you mentioned standing on the platform lifting. What was going through your head? Did it feel like just a normal lift, like a normal comp or did, you, did it feel different? Uh, yeah, it feels so different. I think the the nerves was was one thing that I was very good at managing my nerves. And I think in any competitive scenario, what you're trying to do when you compete is hold back your emotional brain when you perform. You go in every day, time and time again, and lift and lift and lift. And then when you're in that situation now where you're competing for a medal or you're competing at the biggest platform of your life, you can't let the occasion get the better of you. So by actually taking your emotional brain out of it and focus on the things that you are in control of, the processes 
um, of performing a good lift is what you try and do in every competition. It's just 10 times harder to do that when you're on the Olympic platform. Yeah, you know, millions of people watching. Um, and something else as well that I thought was really cool when I, when, I, when I did a bit more research into you, but I, I feel like would have had like a bit of a mixed reception is you were a snapback when you, when you did your lifts. Talk to me about the, the thought process behind that and, and why you chose to do that. Yeah, it definitely got some some mixed <laughs> mixed <laughs> reviews, and I think that more than anything, that was due to how old school Olympic weightlifting is as a as a sport. The thing for me, and the reason why I wore a snapback and had been wearing a snapback for years leading up to that in competition, was the snapback was my way of expressing a little bit about me and my personality, and it comes back to what we spoke about at the start start of this podcast was that weightlifting you're on that platform for a very sh like six seconds, essentially for the actual performance. And then you go back in the back room and that's it. People see a name come up, a weight that they can't relate to. And I think you come out perform and you walk off for me in that short snips seconds that people got to see me on that platform. I wanted them to see that in the way that I held myself, the way that I dress as an expression of who I was, because ultimately that's what people relate to. And that was a way for me to to express my personality and who I am. And I definitely don't take the take weightlifting as seriously in old school as it as it is. Do you think did you do this consciously in the in 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 the sense of like competing at any level of sport at that competing in any sport at that level? You have such a short time frame to do it, right? Did was there any element of like okay? Because obviously it's it's helping build your personal brand. I, this was, I imagine, before you started your businesses. But did Sunny Webster having a bit of personality and doing things a little bit different, did it translate? Did it help you get like brand deals with like uh, apparel or supplements? Did it help? Did it translate with that sort of stuff? Like being you, not so much just a snapback, but you not conforming to this old school mentality and being like, you know. Yeah, I think it works in, in two ways. I think when you are the first person to step out of that norm, like it takes a while for people to adjust. And I was definitely very much the person that caused the adjustment and the people to go, what's going on here before there was that change. But that didn't bother me. And at the end of the day, I wasn't doing it for, if you get into weightlifting because you want to make money, then you're in the wrong fucking sport, you know? And the same goes for recognition. And it wasn't ever something that crossed my mind as potentially helped me in those early stages, but I definitely think it helped me from the relatability point of view with people. And now post Olympics, do you get this like post Olympics depression? That fuck, you've just had that moment, those couple of weeks when you're over there, whatever it is, how do you settle back into normal life? Yeah. I look at the, the Olympics and Sunny as a competitive athlete as that one chapter of my book. And it still like such a long time ago now. Um, it was something that, like I said, for me, it was a selfish pursuit. I wanted to go to the Olympic Games. I wanted to be an Olympian, but it doesn't define me now. It's something that helped me build myself and find out who I was in those early stages, but it doesn't define who I am. And like I said, a lot of what I do now is far more impactful to the masses than what I did as an athlete. And yes, there's that identity crisis after the Olympics because I think for a lot of athletes go through this, they've dedicated their whole life to that one moment. And then they realize that, okay, now I have to live life, but I, all I've ever known is my sport. And that's who everyone knew me as was Sonny, the weightlifter. And it takes a while for you to adjust that you've got more to give than just what you did as an athlete. So I think that crisis ha 
thing happens to everyone. And that's partly the reason why so many people hang on to their sport for so long and keep going far beyond where they should yeah. because it's all they ever know. Whereas for me, I kind of closed the book on, uh, I knew there was always a, uh, expiry date on that sport for me and was able to kind of move on afterwards. Yeah. And, and what, at what point do you turn your attention to business and what was your first business? Like, let's go into the business stuff. Cause I know you actually had some really cool shit that you did as a kid that was really paints the picture of Sonny as this entrepreneurial thinker. Um, let's start there. And then I want to talk about how you started like your post career, actual serious business life. Yeah. Okay. So first business, I think my dad owning his own business was definitely something that got me into thinking the business mindset from a very young age. Um, my first business was actually um, buying and selling golf clubs on eBay. And basically I wanted to be able to buy myself a better set of golf clubs, but I didn't have any money. And um, I started selling some of my old ones to kind of make enough money to buy a new one. And as I was browsing through eBay, I remember upstairs in my bedroom on the computer, I remember looking at all these ads because I knew so much about golf clubs. I'd see some of these golf clubs that were like, weren't like fetching the money they should do. And I'd go in and I'd look at like the descriptions and I'd look at the photos and be like, these are so shit. They look, they've been taken, taken on a potato can. So <laughs> what I thought was, and the reason why my stuff was selling so good because my dad had a little camera. So I was taking photos of them and uploading them and putting all the information in. I thought, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start buying all these like ones that I knew were a bargain and just keeping their boxes, keeping everything, just refotoing them, putting a new description up and then selling them on. And I would make say 10, 20% more every single time. Um, the hard thing was to let go of the clubs that I really wanted <laughs> that I was, was buying, which is probably what it's like being a car dealer. But um, yeah, so that's essentially what I was doing. And I made enough money. I probably made about 3,000 pounds at the time and then got my first real good set of clubs. Man, the, re the reason I love that story is it just goes to show that there's no fucking excuses. If you're a young kid, 16, 15, you earn a couple, you know, a couple bucks working a, like a part-time job, there's no excuse, like get creative. There's ways that you can come up with money. There's the arbitrage, like making money of things. You don't really, if you're just starting out, you don't have a lot of money, get creative, like shit like that. I love hearing stories like that. I love hearing stories like your little tuck shop thing. You would go to the shops, buy stuff before school, then sell them to your mates for more money. Like that sort of shit, man, is just like, it just goes to show it's all in like the perspective and the outlook of opportunity. Well, yeah, I think a lot of people feel as though they have to, innovate and create a product to be able to make a business that can make a lot of money. But in, in hindsight, I think one that this, one of the easiest ways to make more money uh, or to make money is to take someone who's already got a good product, increase the value of it by marketing it really well, and then selling it for, for more, you know, it's like one of the simplest business models. Yeah, for sure. Um, and now onto like the post, I didn't want to skip past that. Cause there's a lot of, a lot of cool shit I want to ask you about, but post, you know, Olympics, you're, you're transitioning into the next chapter of your life. When do you start your first serious business? Yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit about um, Jeff, who's been a been a huge part of my life. He was my first ever sponsor. Um, and in a sport, like I said, like weightlifting, where there was no funding, there was no big prize tickets for, for winning anything, um, I needed sponsorship to be able to progress as my, in my career um, and be able to train full-time. And like I said, that comes back to that moment that I was saying for a lot of people – where life gets in the way or work gets in the way in these minority sports because you don't have the funding to be able to keep training. And Jeff was a, he used to race BMX when he was a kid, extremely successful as that, but 
he needed to go to America to turn pro and his parents didn't have enough money to, to send him. So um, he ended up retiring and setting up a telecoms business that was very successful. And he saw me as a young kid as well, trying to go to the Olympics and um, he was in a position to help. So he did. But I think at an early age, Jeff exposed me to a lot of things, a lot of shiny things, a lot of way of life that he was living that I aspired to have too and wanted to have. And he actually helped me set up my first ever business and it was called Webstar Performance. And it was essentially for me to be able to um, go and teach people weightlifting. So I was doing just small seminars and going around and teaching, you know, 20 or 30 people how to lift. And I think I was probably charging maybe like 40 or 50 pounds at times, so like a hundred bucks maybe. And that was kind of my first taste of like having a little bit of a business in the weightlifting world, um, doing seminars post-competition. And then from there, I remember um, as my social media grew and I only had maybe like 10,000 followers, maybe even less than this at the time, I was um, – people were coming to me and going, oh, will you, will you coach me, will you program me? And I was like, yeah, okay. So I would go and um, – I had like PDFs of training programs on my computer. And what I was doing was if someone – I'd put on my Instagram story, do you want a training program? Someone said, yeah. Then I'd go, cool, what's your email? And I'd get their email address and then I'd send them like the information about the program. And then they would email me back. And once they emailed me back, they would be like, yes, I want it. And then I'd go, right, send the money to this PayPal account. <laughs> and then from there, they would send the money to the PayPal and send me the confirmation. Then I'd send them the program. And I was getting like a lot of these people coming in. I was probably making like 15 grand a month. I was like, I am killing this game. <laughs> <laughs> Sending like thousands of emails a day. Yeah. And I remember being on the train to London and this, this guy messaging me and going, um, so you know what you're doing? I've seen what you're doing. So in the programs, I think I can help you streamline that service. And he introduced me to what it was like to have automations in an email and have a sales page and like email this. So I was like, what the fuck? So you mean that I don't have to press a button now? People just go to this page and it blew my mind. And um, that's when the Sunny Webster Academy really started from that from that first program. It's, it's it. I had a similar moment when I launched my first business. Um, I didn't know anything about e-com. We, we've, we've been in business almost five years. I didn't know about like private label business. I didn't know about dropshipping. I didn't even know about Alibaba, AliExpress, where you can find manufacturers. I didn't know. And it's like we started our first business and – our story is why so many people have the expectation of things happen really quickly. You know how you said timelines condense? Like I was looking at the numbers with the boys last week and like we we did like a hundred grand in our first month and then like we're doing like 30K days, three months in. So it's like life changed really quickly, but it wasn't the money that changed my life. It was learning and 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 seeing all the different avenues you have to create money and all the tools that are at our disposal, the automations, the websites, Shopify, all these sorts of things. But we're not really taught about that as a kid. In Australia, we're not. I don't know about in the UK if you are, but. No, 100%. And I would say I was probably in the fitness industry, industry an early adapter to that. Like I was doing this like eight, nine years ago, whereas now if everyone's setting up an online PT business or selling programs online. Um, and I think I had the person that I was actually working with at the time, Cam Jarrett, he was the guy that, reached out to me to say, look, I can do this side of things. I think having that first step as someone that was in marketing was really helpful because I knew how to sell and I had a good product and I knew it was getting great results. But the first person that came in and helped me was the person that knew all about these kinds of things. 
email lists and click funnels and all of this sort of thing is it really propelled my business in the early days whereas now everyone if you're going to be on online needs to understand yeah. those things you know and talk to me about the process about building like growing the sunny webster academy and kind of how it's turned into what it has today mm. imagine you fucking learned so much over the past few years about the space about what works what doesn't have you been able to build it into into the business it is today Obviously, you've been able to diversify into not just weightlifting and powerlifting, but mobility, things that are a lot more um, broad for all different athletes, potentially even people in all walks of life. Talk to me a little bit about that process um, of how you've been able to build that. Yeah, so in, I think a good place to start is the Sunny Webster Academy. So the Sunny Webster Academy was born maybe six, seven, six years ago. And essentially what that became was a place where I could house all of my training programs and people could buy them. That was just on like a WordPress website. Very basic. Um, and what I was finding was I was selling lots of these training programs, these one-off training programs each time. But people could log in and, and view them, et cetera, and it was going well. Um, and we were doing 1,000 programs comfortably a month and various other bits and bobs that we were doing within that space. And it was going great. But I knew that one of the key things that I was finding when I was going around and doing these seminars was that people were really struggling with mobility. It was like the main thing they were struggling with, like when I was trying to teach them how to Olympic with. And I was like, fuck, what? And I was really mobile. Like people would look at me and be like, how did you get to that <laughs> point and be mobile? And it made me really rethink the way in which people went through the process to learn Olympic weightlifting. Weightlifting in its sport, in its teachings, is very old school. Everyone looks at really old school methodology to teach Olympic weightlifting. And when I went back, when I went to university in uh, 2012, around that time, um, I actually put my focus in the sports performance of Olympic weightlifting. That was what my degree was. And I looked at the way in which people went through the process to learn Olympic weightlifting that was taught predominantly to people that were the age of 10, 11 years old. And thought, this doesn't speak to the modern day person that's now 20 or 30 years old that I'm encountering that wants to learn Olympic weightlifting. Because they don't have the ability to pick up new skill like they do when they're young. Their range of motion mobility shit because they spend the majority of the time sat at a desk. And they don't have the time to put into training and practice as before. And that's really where the mobility manual um, was born. And... I was just moved out to Australia at this point. So I kind of fast forwarded and I was just training out my mate's gym. I thought, fuck, I really got to get on and just film this mobility program. But I was striving for like perfection. I think in those early days of trying to make it this amazing product rather than just do it as a lot of people do. And I just got my phone out and I had like shitty mic. This class is going on in the background of this, uh, of this filming. And I'm just smacking out these mobility exercises. And I did like all the ones that I knew how to do, like that were very weightlifting specific. And I was looking at that and I was like, there's not really enough exercises here to really make a fucking good program. <laughs> so I was like, fuck. So I just went away and started studying a lot of other people's mobility exercises and drills and looking at how I could apply that to weightlifting. So it was specific to our sport because there's being flexible and then there's being mobile under a heavy load of two, two different things. And eventually I've finished with this mobility manual product. So we stuck it inside the Sunny Webster Academy and bang, just fucking sold out way out any of my weightlifting training programs that I'd done before. And I was like, this is amazing. This is great. We're kind of using that as a lead product. But what I then realized that I was kind of being limited by the point when we started increasing like marketing budgets by the, 
that people were coming in. They didn't know who I was. They had that problem of mobility, but they didn't know who I was. So that's when I decided to take my name away from the businesses. And I'll fast forward through a lot of points here, but essentially what I then did was park the Sunny Webster Academy, move it into two separate businesses, which became the lifting zone and the mobility manual was its own product. One, like I said, so my name wasn't included. If we were to ever sell those businesses, then it's not attached to my name. Um, but two, for the lifting zone to be able to bring in other experts in the weightlifting space to work within that business to grow it. Because there's a lot of people that like Sunny, but there's a lot of people like Jeff and like Paul as well. Um, so that then became a space where I could have other coaches in. And then the mobility manual coming out from the Sunny Webster Academy that was predominantly weightlifting was then enabled to grow into other sports. So that's then why the split happened. Yeah, and and – you mentioned that increasingly now over the last year, two years, it's becoming more and more um, common for people to start education businesses or online platforms, programs. What's your main pieces of advice for people looking to get into that space? Because I think it's an awesome, as, as media has um, fragmented, now education is, whether it be traditional, business, sports, like mobility, it's all fragmented and you can really find experts and go direct to them in terms of a business sense though for people in that online education space what would be like a piece of advice you'd give to people building something out in that space yeah i think there's there's two things that kind of stick out for me one of them is to find find your identity in what you do you know if you're going into a supermarket and you're looking at a shelf of um 100 different cans of tomato sauce if yours is the one that sticks out and stands out because it's branded and because it looks a certain way, people will buy into that. And you have to kind of do the same in a space that's so saturated now. Um, so really find what your identity is would be number one. Um, and don't be afraid to stand out from, from the crowd in your methodology. Um, and I think too, finding your niche of what you're good at. You know, at the end of the day for me, mobility is um, a small factor of a very niche sport in weightlifting, but it's my niche. And that's why for me, it was much easier to be able to grow in that space because the competition is so much smaller in, in that niche than there is um, anywhere else. So I'd say that those two things are definitely important um, when it comes to standing out in the fitness space. So even coach. obviously that's easier to do. Like once the Sunny Webster Academy, you bring your personality, your charm, your, because at the end of the day, anyone can teach these things, obviously maybe not to your level with your experience, but as you said, the, the key ingredient to, to make is making it yours what, what do you do different? How do you bring that to the market? Is it the same thing when it's not, say, the Dylan Mullen Academy, when it's something you build? How do you then still make sure you can have something unique about it but not attach it to, to Sunny personally? I think this is where having clear um, ethos is around what your business does and um, a good culture within your business and good direction in terms of this is um, our purposes within the business is really important. And then regardless of whether there's six or seven or 10 coaches working under one house, as long as you're all working towards with the same values and the same goals, the end outcome, that's the most important thing. So I think community and then culture within the business becomes really important once you step away from it, because I know that every single person that works in my business understands what our goal is, what our purpose is and what we're working towards. And I know that all the coaches that, that deliver coaching using my methodology, believe in that methodology, and we're all singing from the same hymn book. And I think that's something that I've spent a lot of time on uh, within my business, all of them, I guess, separately over the last year to one to two years is 
having those things in place because without those things in place, it becomes very difficult to scale a business and for me to eventually take a step back rather than selling my time um, and to be able to focus more on the vision of where we're going rather than being in the trenches, you know? Yeah, talk to me about that because what I've what I've experienced um, over the years, like I was 24 when he launched the business and as I said, it exploded really quickly. So with not a lot of previous management experience at all or serious corporate experience, very quickly I found myself leading a team, recruiting a team, hiring, trying to build culture. So hard when it's your first time, when you're young, when you don't have training. Talk to me about how you do that and how you build culture. And because I imagine you would have struggled with the same thing as me. You're a young guy. You're a fun person. You want to make sure the process is enjoyable. But it's that balance of how do I want to be like to be, be friends with, with the people that work, work with me. But at the end of the day, you're the boss. And like if things aren't going right, you need to be able to have those uncomfortable conversations or say, hey, this isn't okay. How have you navigated that? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think one of the, the big things for me is knowing what your strength is within your business. And I think when you're the owner, you automatically assume the position at the top of the chain. Um, but that sometimes requires a completely different skill set to the ones that you've got. And I spend a lot of time, I love learning. And I feel as though I'm very much at the early stages of where I want to go in my business. And from a business point of view, I'm, I'm still very, very new to this and still learning all the time. So in my early years, I'd spend an hour of every single week and still do trying to learn from, from someone else. I pick someone in a different area or a different part of business that has an expert set of skills that I don't have and learn from them. And you'd be so surprised that how many people are out there that are really good at what they do will share 30 minutes of your, their time or an hour of their time if you just ask. And I was doing that regularly, week on week, learning from different people. And it was just before I set up Big Friday Supplies. And I was like, fuck me, I'm way out of my depth here in e-commerce space. Like I'd done it selling digital product, but never physical product. And um, my girlfriend was working for this company called Tropeka at the time. And she was quite close to the, to the CEO. And he was very like in depth in or in his business, if you like. So she reached out to him and managed to get me a an hour conversation with him and I kind of talked him through all my business and everything that was happening and kind of was at that point where I went to scale and grow. And he was like, Sonny, like absolutely love what you're doing. I think you've got great ethos with everything you're doing in business. But he says, you don't sound like a CEO. You sound like a creative director. And I was like, fuck. Okay. So he said, if I can give you one bit of advice, he said, get off this call and go and hire a CEO. And that was like a pivotal point in, in my business as well because it was identifying that, you know, I don't need to sit at the top of the tree just because I'm the founder um, and bringing in someone that had dealt with bigger numbers than I dealt with before, bigger teams than I'd done, dealt with before, but also to have someone that can look within your business um, objectively rather than emotionally was extremely powerful for the growth and the structure of the business that is today. And that was a, a big point. I guess for us. And when it comes to then now we're hiring more and more people, I think an early mistake that, that I made, and I think this is a good lesson for everyone because we were a new small business, everything's done on like a shoestring budget and everything seems like a fucking massive expense. So when you need someone in the graphic space or also need someone in um, digital marketing or whatever, it, whatever it may be, you go for the fucking option that you can afford the cheapest one. And I think we hired a lot of 
people that weren't necessarily perfect for their job roles in the early days rather than digging a little bit deeper into the pocket and bringing in A players that were adding value to the business rather than just filling a hole that we need in order to be able to get a job done and that require training. And I think that's something that I learned um, the hard way in the early stages that you need to bring in people with that are going to actually add value and knowledge um, because all the time that's taken away trying to improve that that person or get them to a point where they're adding value rather than just doing jobs in you takes time and it takes time away from focusing on the things that like you just said then like culture vision what makes a good team and it's now something that later down the line i'm spending more and more time learning myself in order to be able to to add that to my team yeah i think um that's a really good point you made about sometimes just digging a little bit deeper into the pockets to get the better people in i i've found now i have a smaller head count than i did maybe two years ago but they're all fucking mature Guns. leaders <laughs> i can trust because like i've got a lot of things on now i cannot do it i can't even i, I can go two three days not even check my happy skin e email address and i know the people that are there running it are doing fine if they needed me for anything they'd call me but i can trust that and just paying that little bit more for those staff the peace of mind you have not even the peace of mind the um the lifestyle so much better like for me so worth it but before i did that i, I had a couple hires that i tried um i went too far in that direction just throw money at uh like big big money at and hope that they can handle it all and that didn't work either so I, I still think it's like, but that was hiring just for the resume rather than the, the person mm. and like how well they fit in with the vision, the culture, what we want to do, where we're going, what we expect. So it's just so fucking tricky, man, hiring, growing a team. Yeah. Um, but another thing I wanted to, to speak to you about what you just mentioned, I think it's, um, I've had that same moment with myself. I don't want to be a CEO. And this isn't something that I knew when I started the business. And I think... It takes you to swallow your ego a little bit to, to realize that, but I'm not the best at organization or, or managing things. Like, do I really want to be the, the the best of all those things? Or do I want to be able to have a couple of different projects and be that visionary, that creative? Um, yeah. And I imagine the, the benefits for your business, it it was the right decision. Yeah. Well, I think when speed's in, important um, for growth, especially if you're trying to scale a business, like, yeah, there's an element of you want the person that's going to fit the piece of the puzzle as quickly as possible. But there's also a lot of fun in having someone in that you you love who they are, their work ethic, they know your business and helping them grow as well. And I think that there's a lot of enjoyment in that in, that, in a business person to look around the room and you think like, the people that I've got in my team, one of them was like my first ever training partner and he's like, was working in a sports center and now working with me in a business that we're growing. And I get a lot of enjoyment out of having that person now within the business. Could I have hired someone that would had a better resume? Probably, but to have someone close to me who's been on this journey with me from the start is extremely fulfilling. Um, the latest coach that I just hired was, I remember being outside of a sports school hall crying after a competition. He came up to me with a fag in his mouth and goes, it's all right, son, you'll be okay. And he was um, competing in the 2012 Olympics. Um, Gareth Evans, who we competed against each other for a long time now works in my business with me and in the sport that he loves. And there's a lot to be taken from that as well. Um, I think as much as it is about speed, growth, best person, um, having people around you that you get excited to go in and work with each day 
um, creates a lot of great things too. Man, my best hires have all been people I know. Yeah. And it maybe that's just goes to show maybe when uh, mid twenties I'm shit at hiring. I don't know, but the people, <laughs> all my best hires, I'm telling you, they've all been there multiple, multiple years. They've all added so much to the business. I've gone into work, like I said, excited to spend the day with them. And yeah, so I want to, as I continue to grow in business, like I said, when I, I've, I've got multiple things going on, but I'd love one day to have a CEO of my businesses so then I can just more lean into the stuff I enjoy. Um, but I'd love to figure out how I can hire people I don't know and still have the same success rate. Um, but I want to talk to you about a couple more things before, before we wrap up. Now you mentioned you've the, the clothing label, you've kind of foray into, into e-com for the first time. How would you compare selling, uh, like digital products and, and programs with physical products, um, through an e-com store, obviously similar that it's all online, but talking about the differences, the nuances. Yeah, I think the the biggest thing that stands out to me is the the cost of product. Like that's the huge thing that differs when you're saying a digital product that's essentially free yeah. and the delivery cost is like next to nothing versus when you're selling a physical product, that being like a huge thing to take into account and factor in which I had no experience of doing before. Um, understanding that at the time that we were moving into the e-com space in a space, like I said, that I was very, very new to, um, I didn't understand like allowing like for shipping costs and how dealing with the supplier was such a bull ache and then shipping costs and housing and fulfillment and all of these things that I'd never really considered before um, was extremely difficult. But I knew that what we had in terms of people were buying into me for a lot of it for the initial period. And we did a shit more money in the first month of Big Friday supplies than any of my other businesses in their first year. Wow. And, but yet I stood at the end of that first year in Big, Big, Big Friday supplies with the most amount of revenue and no fucking profit. <laughs> and I was like, I fucked something up here. <laughs> <laughs> and oh. do you know what was cool in that? It was kind of nice to go through that experience where you can make a shitload of fucking money and have nothing to show for it mm -hmm. and go, well, that was a fun learning process. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fuck, man. <laughs> That's so funny. Ecoms, you got to love it. But the things that you learn, you don't, you're not going to be able to predict until you get into it. I remember, luckily, in the in the first year of business, we we made like eight million in our first year, and we were the first product to market. So there were really good margins. And then I hired my cousin, who's been like our finance manager, way smarter than me massive corporate experience, managing billion dollar budgets, that sort of thing. And thank God we brought him in then because as we started to grow and move into all these new markets, if I didn't have him telling us what to do and what not to do with certain structures and setups and things, dude, we could have, I reckon he saved us net profit, 15% at least. Mm. That's fucking, that's massive for people that don't know. Mm. Yeah. Crazy. Huge. Yeah. Huge. And like for, for me, that was, it was nice to be able to take, because Big Fries Bars was essentially a, was a passion project mm -hmm. in, initially. Like, um, of course, yes, it's all about making money, but I was gaining a lot of enjoyment about doing the designs. And um, we were doing crazy shit when it came to the promotion of our products. We were doing these crazy launch videos for my friend who was an amazing videographer. And no one was really doing that in my space. And I was like, this is super cool. Um, where we got let down was the supply and the, the quality be able to keep and improve that um initially but also for me like the a timing was a big thing of it and it, you mentioned this earlier about knowing where to invest like your time and at the time we were just launching the mobility manual app and 
I was finding myself stretched again, trying to do my passion of the clothing and big fry supplies versus we've got this huge product, which is our main product mm. that really needs my attention. So big fry supplies really went on the back burner over the last year. Um, whilst we, we had a company that built our app that went into liquidation that we spent like a quarter of a million pounds on and all of this huge shit show when it came to mobility manual to deal with that we're just about now coming out the other side of. And I will turn my attention back to big Friday supplies again over the next year. Um, but with all the lessons that I've learned over this last year from the next relaunch, we're bringing in someone who's super skilled in this area in the clothing game, which I'm meeting um, in April this year when I go back to the UK, which I'm super excited about. So hopefully having the expertise and the knowledge will help that and, grow. And, and it's only gotten harder since all the shit that's happened over the last couple of years with supply chain, yeah. shipping prices. Shipping, it still yeah. hasn't gone back to, no. to what it was. And yeah, so it's tricky. What about building that app? Is that is that almost complete? Is that for Mobility Manual? What's what's How's that process been? Yeah. Everyone I speak to that's built an app said it's so fucking expensive and it's so stressful, like hundreds yeah. of thousands minimum, right? Yeah, and I think there's a lesson to be learned um, in this experience for, for a lot of people. And if I had my time again, I would have probably done this very differently. And this is a big mistake that I made that I want people to learn from. I thought that the app was the natural progression of something that was a really good online product that was selling really well. Through ignorance, I thought that I needed to improve the quality of the product when no one complained about it before. And had I gone back and actually just fucking asked my my customers if this is something that is important to them or is this something that's preventing you from buying my product because it's not on the app, I would have probably had the answer to my question and saved a year of business and hundreds of thousands of dollars just by asking my customer what their thoughts were. And that's something that I think is extremely important in business is to go and speak to your customers. If you care about your first person that steps into your business as much as you do, like if I had done that now, then I would know a lot more about my direction, where I need to be going, where I need to be focusing my energy. But I didn't do that when I launched the app, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this product that I thought was going to improve people's user experience because I wanted it to be big, and sexy so people went on this incredible app rather than to go yeah this is my product i'm making shitloads of money on it's just on wordpress and people fucking love it um i think i got the ego get the better of me a little bit with that thinking that the app was the right way to go and in hindsight now i'm looking at this app that we launched in march last year i spent a shitload of money doing the launch and all the bells and whistles and then the company that were building it didn't quite finish it, went into liquidation. So we're left with a fucking broken app and no source code. And I'm kind of looking at the app thing now thinking as we've transferred everything back to the web platform, I might just set light to that and just take that as a really good lesson than continually to try and get it back to where I want it. Because I don't think it will ever move as fast as the growth of my business is going to move. And I think that that's something important to identify if there's something like that that yeah it's nice and sexy but it's going to slow down your ability to scale if your key goal is to scale then take that into account <laughs> and that's right there's a lot of expensive lessons in business uh and to have the perspective to know when to hold them when to fold them um is really good and like having that 
having that ability to say, you know what, it's going to be a very expensive lesson. But I feel like now, maybe two years ago when we started that process, I thought it was the right thing. With the experience I've got now, if you don't think it's the right thing anymore, it still takes a lot of courage to to, to walk away and, and essentially burn a couple hundred grand. But it's okay to fuck up and it's okay to make mistakes and everyone does it. They won't necessarily tell you about them um, because they're not proud of them. But for me, being proud of the mistakes that you make and the, as long as you learn the lesson from them, it's what makes you a really good business person because you won't make the same mistakes again. Um, and and I love that, you know. And and with with all this perspective you've had from your fucking life, you've done so many epic things. You've had to deal with your fair share of adversity. Pick yourself up from low moments. Some that might have seemed very fucking unfair. How do you continue? What's your advice to people that are at that point where maybe shits their, their backs against the wall? Shit's not going the way they expected. How do you then continually pick yourself up, refocus, remotivate yourself for the next chapter? I've never met a successful person that in their own way hasn't experienced some level of adversity. And I think no matter how big that thing is that causes the adversity, the feeling of feeling down or feeling defeated remains the same. Whether yours is through losing someone you love or losing your favorite t-shirt, the feeling of feeling down and sadness is the same for us all. The one thing for me that has been so powerful in my life is because I know what that feeling feels like and I never want to feel it again is my biggest driving factor to, to who I am again today. And I think it's so powerful to have experienced like your lowest point and come back from it. You you do feel invincible because I know for me that whatever happens tomorrow, if every single one of my businesses folded and I was left with zero and I had to start again, it doesn't scare me because of everything that I've learned up to that point. It's all up here. Yeah. And I think that becomes extremely powerful for you as a business person. So I think for anyone that is in that feeling where they're feeling down, low, depressed, and that things aren't going the way they want, remember that this all part of the journey and the quicker you draw a, a line in the sand and start looking at the positives and, and where you're heading, um, things will start to look up. And if you just look at any successful business person, like I've never met one. I'm, I'm sure there might be one unicorn that exists, but 99.9% .9 of business people that are extremely successful have had moments of fucking where things aren't going well, that shit, that you have those moments where you question, why the fuck do I keep putting myself through this? But it's part of the process mm. and it's just something you got to accept and deal with. And like you said, if you can get through those tougher moments and come to the other side, it's all fucking worth it. And each time you do that, each time you overcome a challenge or a hurdle, an obstacle, and you, and you get through it, you feel a little bit more invincible every single time. And you realize it doesn't fucking matter. And the time frame gets shorter. And that's the thing for, I think for people that are experiencing a low point and it feel like it's lasting a lifetime right now and you're really struggling to get back up and go again. After you've done that long period, um, the first time round, it gets shorter and shorter. Something shit can happen to me. It can lose a fuckload of money, make a huge mistake. And I'm like, Maybe I'd be annoyed for about 20 minutes. And I'm like, okay, well, let's resolve it. Let's move on. What what can we do? And I feel myself over the years of being in business getting quicker and quicker at doing that. Um, so, yeah, it'll happen to everyone. If if I was to ask you right now, Sonny, you can only pick one one thing, one message. What would your message to the world be right now? Oh, that's a great question. I think stay true to your purpose more than anything understand what you're doing on this planet is it's really important 
Um, knowing the reason why you wake up each morning and regardless of whether that's to go to work or to go to the gym to train, knowing the reason why you do that is super important because I think that will be the petrol that will last forever for you, whether it be in business, in life, in families, commitments and friendships that will, will keep you going. So just stay true to your purpose. And, and what's your vision for all of this? Where, where, do you, where are you taking your life and, and all your businesses over the next few years? Where do you want to take it? Yeah, I think for me, my underlying thing that keeps me up at night and makes me wake up in the morning uh, is the fact that I want to change the way that people perceive the, the sport of weightlifting in the world and make it something that's accessible to the masses so that they can enjoy it the way that I do. You know, weightlifting's given me so much in life from something that is so unknown and such a niche thing. And I want other people to benefit from the sport that I have um, the way I have. And for anyone who is interested in learning more about yourself or potentially want to work from you, learn from you and your team, where's the best place that they can find you? Yeah, so the best place to find me would definitely be on Instagram, Sunny Webster GB. Um, from that, joining my email list to find out more about what we're doing as a business and obviously the Mobility Manual Lifting Zone um, would be the best place to go. Um, we do work personally with people on custom coaching and programming um, within the lifting zone, um, as well as the mobility manual, which is going to be great if you're stiff as fuck and sitting at a desk all day. Fucking who isn't? <laughs> honestly, who isn't? Oh, dude, like thinking of the level of mobility I had as 11, 12-year-old versus now, like I, I do martial arts, so I'm relatively flexible in some areas compared to a lot of people. But like other days, man, my fucking my back. Sometimes after a big day of training, if I don't stretch properly and roll, the next day I can barely tie my shoes. I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, um, fucking thanks again, man, for giving us your time. Uh, I, I love your journey. I love what you've gone to. love what you've built. It's fucking really inspiring to see how successful you are in business. You've been able to even probably arguably more successful in business than you are in sports. So congrats on that. And I'm excited to, to watch where you go from here. Thanks, bro. Cheers, man. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or you got something out of it, do yourself a favor, do me a favor, do your friends a favor and share this with them and they can come along on this journey with us. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.